0: Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people, and this week is part two of my interview with Vincent Patterson. He's a choreographer, a director, a dancer, an actor, and now he's co-written a book called Icons and Instincts, Choreographing and Directing Entertainment's Biggest Stars. It's about his life and career. He wrote it with Amy Tofty and... If you're a fan of his, and I've been for a long time, it's just great. It's full of inspiration and a little dishy and just like how it was to work on the Blonde Ambition Tour and uh, to work with Michael Jackson. And I had a lot of questions for him, two pages worth, and I could have gone on for more. I forgot to bring up the Elvis show that he did in Vegas, which I actually saw. And uh, my favorite part was, I didn't know Elvis had been part of a uh, Twins. He had a twin brother who was lost very early uh, in life. And there was this beautiful dance and this aerial guitar between two brothers. And I, I still think about it. And so I wish I had asked him about that. But I asked him about a lot of other things, believe me. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Boy Butter Lubricant. It's not. I wish it was. It's not. I don't even know if that exists anymore. But anyway, I do it all. I do it. But you can support the podcast in a couple of ways if you like it. You can go to DennisAnyone.net slash support and leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. Help me cover my expenses. Or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows. And for a monthly subscription rate, you get all these great shows. You get my show two days early. And it's a great community of shows. And you will love it. So go to DNRStudios.com to learn more about that. And now here is part two of my interview with Vincent Patterson. Joining me now via Zoom from Hollywood, it's Vincent Patterson, actor, dancer, director, choreographer, and the author of the book Icons and Instincts, which he co-wrote with Amy Tofty. It's all about his amazing career choreographing, directing for Michael Jackson, Madonna, uh, The Birdcage, just everything you've ever seen and loved. He's the man behind it. Blonde yeah. Ambition tour. You you d- directed and uh, are you co- did you direct it? Yeah, directed and co- I, co I co-directed it with Madonna. Right, fantastic. But you had first worked with her you on a Pepsi commercial, kind of accidentally. It wasn't an official situation. I and I loved it because it has all of Madonna's trademark sort of bratty ah. bratty sort of come here go awayness. It was just like so typical. So, <laughs> can you tell a little bit about the story about how you first met her and and uh, started working
1: with her. Sure. I I had started to um, work a lot with a great director, Joe Pitka. Um, I met him doing The Way You Make Me Feel for Michael Jackson. Right. We hit it off so well. Um, And he started to call me to choreograph commercials for him. And he was about to do this one with Madonna. And he called me and he said, listen, um, uh, is it okay with the language I use on here? Yeah, do it. Okay. (laughs) because I'm talking about Joe. So Joe's language was, hey, Vince, could you get the fuck down here? I'm working with fucking Madonna. She doesn't want to fucking dance or anything. Can you get your fucking ass down here right now? I was like, yeah, sure, Joe. So I went down, and he said, yeah, she doesn't want to do the fucking thing. You know, she just wants to sing and walk around or something. You know, I can't do that. So I'm standing there with him, and Madonna goes walking by with her entourage, and Madonna, (laughs) Joe says to Madonna, oh, Madonna, wait, I want you to meet Vincent Patterson. He's Michael Jackson's choreographer. Madonna says, I don't need a fucking choreographer and walk right by me. And right. oh God, I was like, I'm dead. I, I thought I had died and gone to hell, you know? Right. It's just that feeling of like, Ugh. oh, yeah. so insulting. Right. So demeaning. And, um, but I stayed. Joe said, please stay. Please stay. And I helped um, that first afternoon. I helped. They were having a tough time for trying to get one shot. And I synced up Donna's movement with a camera arm action. And she got out of there quickly. And, actually thanked me, and Joe said, come back tomorrow. So I came back the next day, and I gave some stuff to the background kids, and they're all doing my work a little bit, and and I see them stopping, and they're looking over my shoulder, and I turn around, There's Madonna in, like, bunny slippers and a robe and her hair in curlers, and what are you doing? And I said, I'm not choreographing anything for you, I promise, I promise. You know, she goes, no, I like it. I'm going to get changed. Show me what it is. And that became the beginning of a really nice relationship, you know. There's that – because she has a lot of siblings. I think that – I have this theory that, like, her little
0: prickly kind of challenging thing – I think it's from being in a big family and having to kind of, you know, elbow – I don't know. And you kind of – there are a lot of those moments in the book. And yet you also write about how, especially on Express Yourself, there are so many iconic body shapes in that. And that, like, you helped her find her body language. That, like, when I'm at a club and they play it, I know that bump, 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 like – I know that silhouette, like all of that stuff. And you were able to put that on her. And I, I, I really believe that it would not, we wouldn't have those images if it weren't for your ability to kind of know what works on her and be able to communicate it to her. Um, thank you.
1: Yeah. You know what, what, She had always called herself a dancer, and I had seen a tour before, and I had seen her videos, and she really wasn't doing much dancing, yet she kept coming out all the time. This is way at the beginning, remember, she kept coming out, oh, I'm a dancer, I'm a dancer, I studied Martha Graham, and I did all this. So when I came into the scene, I thought, well, you know what, if you're going to be a dancer, I'm going to make you dance, girl, Yeah. you know, why not? And I pushed her, and she did, and I mean... Uh, fortunately, we we worked so well together and we got to change the face of pop tours. I mean, there was not a pop tour like Blonde Ambition Tour prior to that. And now everybody does what we do. It'd be nice to see somebody change it. But, you know, I thought now she's coming out with her, whatever, 50 years of... Yes, like,
0: I already have my tickets.
1: Oh, you do? Yeah, I'm in. Wow. They're, not,
0: they're not great tickets.
1: <laughs> uh, well, but we're know, there, I, we're I, I, there. To me, it would have been great if, you know, she brought me back and she brought Nikki and Donna back yes. and really did it the way yes. it should have been done. But Nikki whatever. and
0: Donna, of course, are the background singers who move really well. You, oh, yeah. Right. You you were like, oh, you were able to really put the moves on them.
1: Um, yeah, they were great.
0: I have a history with Lawn Ambition, which my listeners have probably heard a handful of times. So I auditioned for that tour. I want to hear this. Okay, so – it was in Hollywood, and the, the the breakdown went everywhere. So a lot of because I, w- I didn't have an agent or anything like that, but I was dancing on, on cruise ships at the time. It was during one of our breaks, and it said dress street. So I don't know what that means. So I think I had torn jeans. Like, and we go there, and it's in Hollywood, and they usher us in, and they teach us like a, a combination. That's I still remember a part of it. Running man. Uh, Roger Rabbits and then small and sexy Roger Rabbits, which are dif- different than traditional Roger Rabbits. It was just to see if we could move and, and then they type out. And I got typed out in the first thing. Oh. Um, but she was there. And I got yeah. to to sort of say that I did it. And um, the experience was so rich for me because I was such a fan and I had this fantasy of what it would be like. And we're going to be best friends and I'm going to be on the tour. Like, but I also knew it was a little ridiculous And that she could be a little ridiculous. So I wrote an article about my experience, Confessions of a Boy Toy Wannabe. And I had never written before except for in school, but I never thought of myself as a writer. And I sent it to all these magazines and newspapers, like query letters, like I really did it. And there was a magazine named called Movie Line, which is one of my favorites, is sadly no longer with us. And the editor there got my query letter and said, you know, I really think your letter's funny. If your article's as funny as the letter, I think we might have something here. And uh. they bought the story and ran it, Confessions of a Boy to a Wannabe, in 1990, just as the tour was coming out. And I started, he started giving me assignments, and that's how I became a writer and a journalist. So, wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I got to interview Madonna as part of a group of interviewers at a, for Bedtime Stories, that album. And I told her the story that I became a writer because she rejected me. And she goes, Oh, that's good. You took a negative and you turned it into a positive. And I was like, I did. That's very Madonna, actually. Yeah. So and then I went and saw the tour. And it just captured my imagination. I, you know, 10 I bought 10 tickets and we all went. It was just like everything. And I loved how every dancer had a chance to shine. Oh, like Gabriel's really going to pop in into the groove, and Slam is going to Dick Tracy, and you know the 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 Vogue boys are going to really have their thing, and like Kevin is the Mermaid moment, like like everyone. Because I hate when you go to tours and it's just these wonderful dancers that are like have a gigantic hat on, and you don't even see their face. No, I yeah. love that for the dancers, and I I. I but you were not the original choreographer, and you kind of came in and saved the day, right? And you tell that story in the book. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. um... After I had done Express Yourself, she told me um, the video Express Yourself. She told me I'm going to do a tour, and I really want you to do it with me. And I said, Great. So I was waiting, 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 and then I heard that there was an audition going on, and I wasn't involved. And I had an agent at that point, and they had just started bringing in choreographers with agents, and um, and I had my agent call Freddie DeMann, her manager at the time, and say, Well, Vincent thought that he was being involved in the tour, and Freddie said, No she's wants to go another way and she's bringing in Carol Armitage from New York who has a modern dance company and modern ballet company. And anyway, so apparently they worked with Carol for several weeks, like almost a month, I guess. And one day I'm sitting at home and I get a call and it's Madonna on the phone. And she goes, hi, Vincent, it's Madonna. And I was like, uh what do you want and she said oh my god I, can't, I made the biggest mistake in the world I hired a woman it's not working and, and 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 nobody's listening to her and you know I really need you to come and save the day and you know what to do with me and you know how to work with dancers and please please can you come and do it and there was a lot of negotiations it happened and right I you said, played
0: hardball with her because you wanted what you were worth and it looked well, like it wasn't going to work out
1: yeah, because, you know, they had already paid this woman apparently yeah. a lot of money, I guess. And, and, and I guess she had a budget. I have no idea. I mean, it was, Madonna was just beginning that major career at that point, you know. So, But I thought it was very fair what I asked for, my agents asked for, and I gave everything away to her anyway. I didn't keep anything for myself in terms of copyright or ownership. I gave it all to her. But the other stipulation was I said I want to direct the tour. And she said, well, I've already started working on it, so how about if we co-direct it? And I said, that's fine with me. And, um, you know, it was fine. I mean, she had put a lot of thought into it before I sure. came onto the team. So, uh, but that's ultimately what happened, and and we had a great time. And, you know, I worked her ass off, and she danced her ass off, and she worked really, really hard on that tour. But it was that tour, if you remember... There were a lot of women at the same time that were kind of like neck to neck, and, and that tour pushed her through right. that stratosphere, made her Madonna, right. made
0: her Madonna. And then Truth or Dear followed it, and it was a whole yeah. thing. But you didn't have a lot of time to put that together. Like, it was kind sure. of under the gun. I get the feeling that you work fast, and inspiration comes relatively quick. You're able to do that. You're not like, I need to go away for three weeks to think of the thing, right? Are you, you're, you're good well, under pressure.
1: It depends. It depends on the situation. Again, this is, you know, going back to the psychic thing we were talking about. Um, I was kind of desperate. I said yes. And I thought, what the fuck am I doing? You know, I mean, (laughs) this is crazy. I have 21 days to do 18 songs Come with 18 different pieces in 21 days. How am I going to do this? So, you know, I kind of relied on that psychic thing and I thought, you know what, Vincent, you took the gig, the gig came to you. It's going to happen. So I would put, I would take one song. I would, Put it on a cassette. That's what we had at that time. And right. I, before I went to bed, I would listen to the song over and over and over. I would fall asleep with it on. My my partner would come in and take the headphones off me as I was because I was sleeping. And right. I would wake up the next day. And Dennis, the piece was in front of my eyes. The entire piece was in front of my <sighs> eyes. And I would go into the studio just down the street, actually, Alley Cat Studio. It doesn't exist anymore. But I would go down there. I worked with Kevin. And I worked with a woman named Smith Wordies, who was my assistant, And put the piece on them. Then the dancers would come in, and Donna and Nikki, I'd put it on them. Then Madonna would come in, I'd put it on her. We'd rehearse that piece, go home that night, put another song on, wake up the next day with another whole vision in front of my face, go in, review what we had done the day before, do the next piece. It was like that day after day after day. It was crazy. It just came through me. That's why I kind of use this phrase in the book about putting my finger into the electric socket of creativity because that's what it felt like, you know, sticking my finger into the socket of this amazing energy that was coming from someplace and just getting buzzed and information like, like you couldn't believe. So that's how it happened. Do you remember the moment when Madonna herself realized, oh, this was the right
0: move. This was, I'm so glad this is working. This is going to work out. We're going to be okay. We're going to pull
1: this together. No, I don't remember that. I just remember the first day I went down and she was kind of pissed because I had won the negotiations. But <laughs> Of course um, she was.
0: That's her brand.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, I mean, she was so amenable and so collaborative um, in a way that I understand she isn't anymore. Yeah. But, uh, you know, she was hungry. She was really hungry. She wanted and she had something to prove. Needed, yeah. yeah she, she had something needed to prove. To do it. And she knew that I could do it and I could. And so she listened and she, you know, I mean, we had discussions about stuff and, but nine times out of 10, she just went with the way that I saw something because basically we didn't have time to argue or change it, you know?
0: Yeah. I had Carlton and Kevin on my podcast when um, Strike a Pose came out, the documentary about those guys. Uh And uh, it was just so wild to talk to them and to think about that time and to you know i auditioned for it and imagine what it would have been like um what did you have an, an opinion about the lawsuit that happened at the in the in the wake of all of that or that was was that
1: sort of separate from you did you have any thoughts about it no it was totally separate from me um because i told her at the very beginning they couldn't shoot me i knew madonna was manipulative and um you know, the I am actually in Truth or Dare at the very beginning when we went to Japan, I yeah. think you see me walking across the stage or something. But I was very clear with her. I said, No, you can't shoot me for this film. I don't want to be in this film. Interesting. And, uh, are you glad yeah. you
0: are you glad you did that?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. In, yeah, I am. I mean, I it, it wasn't necessary for me to be in it because it was about post my work. Right. You know. After your work it was been... about the tour once it had taken off yeah. it wasn't about the creation of the tour so i felt it was a legitimate request on my part to not include me and yeah. i was just nervous of what she could do and my career was just beginning to take off and i thought you know she could destroy it if she wanted so
0: right and uh, you had a feeling of like i don't yeah you, you just, something said no tell this is not yeah. yeah interesting the safe,
1: the safety factor i yeah. think
0: <laughs> um the tour was provocative and and a uh, little scandalous the pope weighed in on it What was that like that was causing scandal? Did you kind of get a kick out of it? Was there something that delighted you you about that?
1: Growing up as a young Catholic kid, are you kidding? The fact that I got a bad review from the Pope, how fantastic was that? That made my day. Most exciting review I think I've ever had in my life, you know. With the blonde ambition Tour, Satan has been re-released into the world. That was oh, the quote? That's a lot of, that was the quote from the Pope. You can't yeah. ask for a better quote from the Pope. I know, that's my God. Yeah. I think it must have sold a billion more tickets, you know?
0: <laughs> and then not long after that, you did two iconic Madonna uh, award show appearances. You did the sooner or later Dick Tracy Oscar night with the Marilyn Monroe thing. And there were moments from that, boom, when she's singing from behind. But I also remember her shaking because of the clothes. Oh, yeah. She was trembling.
1: She, um, was nervous. she was so nervous but she nailed it
0: what was it. it like you're, you're watching it you're like oh my god she's so nervous it feels like a lot of pressure because it's every famous person in the world um what was it like on oscar night to be watching it
1: oh it was incredible i was sitting out in the audience next to sophia loren and uh, like you do who, like as one does <laughs> you know one of my all-time famous favorite heroes and um yeah. And it was so when she came when Madonna came up out of the ground with her back to the audience, you know, and started singing with her back to the audience. Just, nobody knew that I had done it. They didn't know who I was sitting in the, the front couple rows there. But people were just like, what's she doing? What is she doing? What is this about? And it was just so exciting to think that we had like. Turn the screws a little bit on everybody at the Academy Awards in a very fun way. But she was very nervous. I mean, yes, you can see her shaking and trembling. And she sang live, you know, too. And that was tricky, you know, at the Academy Awards. So.
0: And she's beating uh, that fur on the thing and shaking it. And was that the night she went to the Oscars with Michael Jackson? Did yes, you Your two icons were dates?
1: Yes. Did they ever very...
0: talk about each other to
1: you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Many times, but things I can't disclose, but I didn't even disclose them in the book. But but it was quite funny when, you know, I would get a call from Madonna. So are you working with him or are you working with me? You know. (laughs) I'd be with Michael and he goes, You really like working with her? Yeah. Yeah, I do, you know. I like
0: it. Oh, so he's doing the moonwalk again? Okay, I guess. I'm bouncing off the walls and, you know, whatever. I'm doing something new. Yeah. It's it's so funny. You were, like, in the middle. But they actually went to the Oscars together that night. So it was wild. But then after the Oscars, the night of, you get a call from your father, which is in the book. And it was, like, uh, it was a gut punch and also, like, kind of funny, too. (laughs) Like...
1: I know. I know. Yes, my father... Yeah, my father, my father, I share the same name as my father. And, um, you know, my father was an alcoholic and he would often call me at late nights and talk about something. But he called me up and he was crying and he said, oh, my God, I just saw the Academy Awards. And, you know, I I, I can't believe it. I, I I can't believe what I just saw. And he said, "And I said, what do you mean, Dad? And he goes, you got that. That credit was incredible. And I said, I know I got a whole single card credit for it. And he said, do you know what that means? And I said, what, Dad? He said, that means a billion people saw my name up there. And and he was... wasn't saying it in an ironic, jokey way. No. Oh, no. That was my father. Wow. You know? yeah. Wow. But wow. that's what I said kind of at the beginning of this interview, that my father felt that he was destined for something that never really happened.
0: Right. You know? Wow. <clears throat> and and that th- you have the perspective on that, and you can try to process it. And – and um uh make sense of it. He's been, he's been gone for a while yeah. now. And then you do the Marie Antoinette Vogue thing for the MTV <laughs> awards. And uh, you said that the idea came from, cause like, you kind of had the fans from a previous project or, and the, it kind of all came out of the fans, right?
1: Yes. I was, uh, I was, uh had started do a project with Diana Ross and it just didn't happen ultimately, but I had these fans cause it was the disco era. And I wanted to do one of her songs from the disco era with fans. So I purchased all these fans and, Madonna called me up and said, you know, listen, I've got, to do the, I've got to do Vogue again. You know, I have to do it for MTV Awards. And, you know, I was thinking of doing it with, you know, Nikki and Donna and I in, in suits and the guys in skirts. And I said, oh, Madonna, come on, we've done that already. We don't need to do that again. Well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. Let me go down to the studio and play for a little while and see what happens. So I went down. I took these fans. I don't know why. I started to play around. I thought, you know what? This is really cool. I never thought about this before. But Vogue is kind of like the the court gesturing of the Marie Antoinette courts in the right. 18, you know, 1700s and stuff. And I thought, this could be really fascinating to do it. And I called Madonna and I said, hey, I have a great idea. How about, because she was always, every time you saw Madonna, she had a different personality, you know, different character, different right. costume." Right, I said, you as Marie Antoinette and all the guys are, uh, and, and, and Donna and Nikki as women in your your, your court, and the guys are all these fops in the court. She goes, that sounds like a fucked up idea. I was, and, and I said, well, why don't you come down and see it, Madonna, and see what you think? So she came down and fell in love with it immediately. And yes, so we did it. So, yeah, that was so cool. Nobody was expecting it. It was such a surprise. It was such a shock, and it just it was viral before viral existed, you know.
0: Well, I went back and looked at it, and I've seen it a million times. But what struck me this time is she knows she's killing it. Because sometimes oh. she looks a little nervous or whatever. But there's a moment where you can just see. Like, she knows this is iconic. This is, She's <laughs> got it. And the, everyone's tight. Nobody had a. They were all so confident. It looked so well rehearsed and so tight. And you could tell as it's happening that she's like, we are crushing this. This is one for the ages. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you could tell. I do. She feels <laughs> it. Um, I had a guest on my podcast earlier in the year named um, Warren. Uh, Warren Cito is what he goes by online, but he did a claymation recreation of this. Oh, I know who uh, he is. Yes, yeah. yeah, and he he even got the little like every little detail, and it was it's just I know he's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and uh, then you ended up doing it the next night at the celebration for life. What do you remember about the crowd reaction the next night? Like, the, A, that you were even there and that you're doing this. It must have been incredible.
1: Well, it was at the Wilshire Wilshere Bell, so it was quite a small theater. I right. think they only seat, like, maybe under 1,000 people or something, you know. And, yes, I, I, I directed that evening, and um, it was for AIDS Project LA, APLA. And And, right. um, you know, I thought – Madonna was such an advocate for um, not only gay rights, but but the fight against AIDS. Early. And, Early, you know, when thought, a lot of other people weren't. She was there. Yeah, exactly. She was at the forefront of it all. And I thought, you know, this is perfect. And we've got the costumes, we've got the wigs, we've got everything. We, we've we got a simple set. It does. It's not elaborate. We don't need to take a lot of things. So when we were rehearsing that afternoon before MTV, I said, listen, I'm directing this show tomorrow night. And I could easily plug this into the beginning, not tell anybody except the tech people. And, you know, the audience was filled with everyone from Sarah Brightman to Rod Stewart to, oh, my God, on and on and on and on. And, and when, when that curtain opened up and, and the guys came out, now many people had seen it the night before. So right. you start to hear these yells and screams and applause from the audience. And then when the girls came out and Madonna came out, it was like incredible. People just could not believe it. They couldn't believe it that it happened in front of their face the next night. Amazing. And, and all because of her. I mean, she was the one who wanted to do it. She felt it was important and she wanted to make a statement at the APLA benefit, you know, and she's always been that way with, for AIDS and, and gay rights, you know?
0: Yeah. What is it about your personality that can deal with her bratiness, her little, you know, her Madonnaisms? Like, you seem to, like, not take them on too much, right? You're, you, right? How do you, you have a way of dealing with her, right? What is that?
1: I don't know. I don't, I haven't, I don't know her now. I haven't seen her in a long time, you know. Um, but I don't know, you know. I'm just an honest person. And what I always say is, you know, like she would come up with some ideas and I would say, look, either they were good or they were bad. If they were bad, I would say, I don't think they're good. And, you know, I don't think you're going to look good doing it. I don't think that works for you. And I said, but I would always say, this is my opinion. You're paying me a lot of money to give you my opinion and I'm giving it to you. But ultimately, you're the one in front of everybody. So you have to make the ultimate choice. Right. Um, like, for instance... Um by the time the Blonde Ambition Tour had gone off and it was out for months and I went to Sweden to kind of put it together again, tighten it up before they started shooting it for uh, Truth or Dare, she had used the word fuck like 50 times in the show. And after the show, I said, Matana, you know, that was great. But, you know, I think you used the word fuck to fuck you too much of the fuck you're saying fuck all the time. You know, 50 times I counted. She goes, Vincent, fuck you. yeah that's it that's it
0: (laughs) but you roll with it and you ended up working on evita the movie and as a fan what struck me about it is like it's rare that a pop star will go out and learn a new way to sing in the middle of their career like she sounded like a different person and it was suitable for the thing but it was like oh she went away and and learned an entire new thing And and was it the same with the movement? Was there this learning curve with the tango and stuff like that? Like she went out and learned how to do all this stuff.
1: Oh, yeah. She did. And and in fact, I I had done some research and I found some incredible tango, tango partners who were working in New York at the time. Um, Danielle and Maria and um they and I contacted them through some other tango people I knew and I said hey would you be open to giving Madonna some private classes and they were like are you kidding so she went and took private classes in New York to learn tango and um and that but that was Madonna at that time you know she she really invested herself in every single thing she did and um yeah i mean superstars like this i don't know i, I I haven't been in this business for a while now. I've been directing big musicals and stuff like that in theater, but it just doesn't seem that the stars are the same anymore from what I hear with people that work for them. You know, they, they kind of show up thinking they know everything. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to have that opportunity with people like Madonna, Michael Jackson, to work with them when they were starting out these careers and they were really hungry and they really wanted to learn. And I was very, very fortunate to be there at that time.
0: Well, also they were doing it first. There weren't people – Yeah. There, they were the first that everyone imitates from now on. Brittany and Justin and J-Lo and all of them, Taylor, like they all – that's yeah. what you look at. You uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um,
1: yeah, all of them. So they were inventing something and you were
0: helping well, them invent it.
1: Well, not only that. That's what they told me. I mean that's all they demanded of me was that I create something wonderful that the world had never seen before. That was what I was asked yeah, to do. No big deal. What work you do yeah. As an artist, now get your ass else into else the thriller
0: moments. room and come back with magic, young man. Exactly. Yeah, and we'll pay you. And, and we'll, we'll pay, pay you, you a nice check. Um, it sounds like a Vita was a mixed bag for you. Like Alan Parker and you had had some tension and, and some moments where you felt sort of not really in the, in the included. As, as much as you'd like to be, and yet there were moments of transcendence in terms of the creativity of it. Is that yeah. how you think of it, Avita? now, like sort of an interesting experience with highs and lows?
1: Yes, well, Alan Parker was a difficult man. First of all, I, 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 I'm sorry to say this, but he was drinking a lot during that time period, and he was a little bit not clear all the time. And also, I think what happened ultimately was that Most Alan Parker movies had always been Alan Parker movies. He was the star of his movies, and with Evita, he was not. Right, it was was really about Madonna. Yeah, it was about Madonna, and and Madonna didn't ask me to choreograph it. Alan asked me to choreograph it. So, um, and as I told you before a little earlier, you know, I'm not into being good friends with celebrities. It's not part of who I am or what I care to do. Right, but you know, I mean, I, I had to make Madonna feel comfortable. And I'd worked with her for years. And, you know, so we did have a relationship, so to speak. But, you know, I certainly wasn't her best friend by any means. And Alan perceived it in a different way. And I guess he was having difficulties with Madonna. I don't know. I didn't get into all that. But I think he thought that I was kind of in the Madonna camp, so to speak, right. and kind of pushed me there with that perspective. And I, I had to conf- confront him, honestly, and just say, listen, man, you know, this is not the way it is. And, um, you know, if, if, if you feel that I'm in some kind of camp that's moving against your work as a director, I don't need to be here. We haven't started shooting yet. You can get another choreographer. I mean, I'm happy to be here. I love being here, but I don't want to deal with this bullshit. And, um, anyway, and he was very open and he said, I'm so sorry. You're right. I, I have been doing that. And sometimes, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm just very honest and, and it takes honesty to get down to the, the, the the basics of of what we're dealing with, and especially in this business, it's filled with so much bullshit. You know, honesty is rare. So, yeah,
0: it serves you, and and you're and you're and you have the confidence to express it. Like I think I sometimes don't always feel like I speak up. I'm getting better at it, but I think it can be hard to sort of challenge people, especially when they're, you know, have authority or they're the director or they're a big star. So yeah. I, I admire that. Um, you talk about one of the creative highs of that movie, from your book at least, was The Requiem with all the couples that you do. Yeah. And you had an interesting approach to capturing what you wanted to capture with that. Can you talk about creating that?
1: Sure. Well, through most of the stuff that I've done, um, what I think my contribution to the world of choreography was to to take dancers and make them understand the art of acting because I've always felt that theater and, and film and all of that was, it can be very sacred. And as a performer, we're gifted with this talent and we have the obligation to make what we express bigger than ourselves, to have a voice that speaks to a wider audience than just the few people that we know. And so I was, I I had hired all these, um, original tango dancers, all different ages, shapes, and sizes. And I brought them in for my first day of audition and um, had them in the room. And I was going to start to play. And I put on the Andrew Lloyd Webber music. And they all looked at me like, what the hell is this? And because when I had the auditions, I used tango music. Right. I didn't use Andrew Lloyd Webber. And a, a, a kindly older couple came up and they said, we don't dance tango to anything but tango. And I had to think on my feet, and I thought, oh, my God. Okay, well, look, what what the dance expresses is so much more important and valuable to the world than the music behind it. It's the movement that is the expression, not necessarily the music that supports it. I said, I would like you to dance with each other and I would like you to put in your heads the vision of someone who you love dearly who has passed away. And as you dance the tango, if you, if that person goes out of your head, even when you're dancing with your partner, just stop and make them stop and wait till that person comes back in your head and then move again. And that's what they did. And they said, we can do this because we were dancing from our hearts. And so they, did it to the Andrew Lloyd Weber music and 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 Tim Rice and and it worked so gorgeously. And when we shot that requiem in this beautiful old dance hall with the light streaming through the windows and and I gave them that direction before we began and we rehearsed a little bit for camera, Alan Parker was blown away at the the emotion, the sincerity that he saw in the dancers and the movement that they created just because of what I had asked them to put into their heads. So this is one of the joys that choreography has always brought to me, that I've had the opportunity, whether it was in the Blonde Ambition Tour or Smooth Criminal or Evita, to actually work with dancers and let them know that they can act. They can, they can be actors as well if they touch on honesty and truth.
0: Right. And it, you feel it as a viewer. You absolutely feel it. Um, something else you write out in the book, and I really appreciated this as a as a former dancer and somebody who wanted to be on those tours. You wrote about how, you know, for these young dancers, you get to go on the road with Brittany or Janet or whatever, and it's fabulous and fancy dinners and all of it. And then it ends, and you're back in your apartment in North Hollywood with three roommates, and you're like, oh, shit. What now? Mm-hmm. Right? and mm-hmm. I. We didn't solve that problem but I appreciated reading about it cuz I I I know those guys. I've been that guy in a way mm-hmm. and it's a heady thing. But
1: yeah. Well, it's it's tough enough to be a working dancer and then not get gigs for a while just in the in the realm of working out here in LA. But when you do a tour with somebody, you become a celebrity. For that period of time. Yeah. You have fans. You have screaming fans. You have fan mail. You you hang out with the star. You become their best friend, so to speak. And then all of a sudden the tour's over and you're done. And you don't have any guarantee you're going to be hired to do the next one. And most of the time you're not. Right. So. You've got to deal with what's this like. It's not just like I just did a commercial for two days and that's fine. Now I'm going to go out and audition again. No, it's like I was just a star for six months. And now I'm just a dancer in Hollywood. That's how do I remedy that? How do I rectify that in my life? And, you know, I never did that. So I was fortunate to not have to go through that difficulty. But I know a lot of people who did and some who were almost suicidal. Because they didn't get over it.
0: Yeah, it's hard. Um, you write about Dancer in the Dark, the um, Bjork movie with uh, directed by Lars von Trier. And I had never seen that until I started reading your book, and then I watched it, and I was blown away by it. And you know who comes off wonderful in your book? I fell in love with Lars von Trier. There's something very irresistible about him and sweet about him and, and sort of creative and genius. And, like, he's got a little – I felt like a twinkle in his eye, right? Um, What do you think of him? I I was surprised by that because his movies are edgy and different and, you know, uh, he has his rules that he follows and all of that. But he was kind of um, very endearing in your book.
1: Very endearing. He was kind of like this Danish bad boy. But, you know, I had already dealt with so many bad boys and bad girls that dealing with Lars was not (laughs) nearly as as, uh, venomous as sometimes it can be in Hollywood. So he was actually a sweetheart. And you know, at the very beginning, what happened was he contacted me because there were several things that he was looking for several choreographers and it turned out they were all me. Um, (laughs) So that was fantastic. I I either
0: want the guy that did Blonde Ambition or the guy that did Smooth Criminal.
1: Yeah. Like, oh, it's the same guy. Okay. Yeah. But, but I had to say no, because I don't tap dance. And it was all about tap dancing in the beginning. And he was naive about that. And and, but he loved, again, my honesty, where I said, I can't do it, Lars, because I don't tap dance. He said, well, can't you get somebody and, and let them do all the tap dancing and you just kind of oversee it? I said, nope, I don't work that way. Can you come to Denmark and talk to me about it? Sure. So I went and I basically explained to him that the premise of her being a tap dancer in every single number just wouldn't work. It It just wouldn't work because you know, tap dancing is like ballet. It's a real technique. I mean, yeah. you can't do, you can't fake seven numbers of tap dancing. You right. can fake one and, uh, and make it funny, but you can't do it seven times over. Right. It would destroy the film. So when I explained that to him, he got it and, and he was very open to me and he treated me like a brother and was so open. And ultimately what happened was I was hired to choreograph the movie, but during rehearsals, I was rehearsing and, We didn't have this older character that we needed, and he came up to me one day and said, well, you know, I found my actor, and I said, who is it? He took me over to the mirror, and he goes, here he is. I said, no, Lars, I I stopped acting a long time ago. And he said, no, 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 you know, I've been watching you in rehearsals, and, and you're the character that I've been dreaming of. And I said, okay, I'll do it eventually. And I did it. But even more incredible than that was he had this bizarre concept to shoot, The dances with 100 mini DV cameras, which had just come out, I couldn't believe it.
0: Yeah, I read that and I was like, "Is that a typo?" No, 100. Uh, Okay,
1: 100, and sometimes 150. So he also decided he wanted to uh, man the one solo camera that caught all of the action—not the dance action, the, the drama of the piece. And after we did the first piece, he said, "You know," and I and I did it next to him, which was the piece on the train hand in hand so tightly. Um, He said, Vincent, I can't do these dances pieces anymore. It's too much work. I I, I can't do it. But you're director, you can do it. So I wound up choreographing, acting and directing all the dance sequences with 100 and 100 plus cameras. It was phenomenal for me. Did the 100 camera technique pay off? Was it was it worth it? Did it or
0: was it just like, oh, that was a fun stunt, but we could have done it with three?
1: Well, it was it paid off in a certain way because and I'll explain this briefly not get too technical about it. Usually what happens you do uh, you you set up all the cameras you set up all the lights for a specific moment maybe a page in a in in a play or a screenplay or uh, whatever. And the same thing with dancing if you're in part of a location say you're in the big factory, you're going to just light one part of that factory and then you shoot everything that happens there. And everybody takes a big break, then you relight, then you move the cameras, then you do it, and then you do the next little 20 seconds of something. Well, the advantage of doing this was that all the cameras were basically connected to the same recording device. Let me be that untechnical. Right. And so... All we had to do was set up all the cameras as I had created the dances to be sure that they were going to, that the cameras would cover every moment in the piece from beginning to end, attach them all to the same recording device, press record and start the piece from the beginning. The dancers and our art, artists would go through the whole piece from beginning to end and you'd have it done. So, originally Lars' idea was, well we have these cameras, we only have to shoot it once. Well, he realized that no, we had to do it a couple times. But to me, it was a little bit insane and overkill because these poor editors had to sit through sometimes right. seven seven or eight takes of 100 to 150 cameras to try to put a piece together. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't necessary. It was a bit of a experiment. I don't want to say gimmick because Lars was very sincere in everything that he tried to do. Every um advancement he tried to make in film right. um so it wasn't really a gimmick it was something that he wanted to experiment with to see how it would pan out right and he did get amazing things that perhaps we wouldn't have gotten had we broken it down into scene by scene by scene or moment by moment by moment yeah uh, gave us a lot more opportunity
0: boy i really felt for bjork reading your your book she had a hard role and it was hard right yeah. and she 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 touched me as well what
1: what do you very remember deep,
0: about, about working with her? What was meaningful for you deep, about deep. it?
1: Well, I I knew how difficult it was because she's just the, the sweetest kind of most happy, lovely, giggly person that you would ever want to run into, you know. I mean, we'd have parties and she'd run up and man the the turntables to do the be de- doing the DJing, you know. Right. I mean, she's just so crazy. We she and I would walk around Copenhagen and she'd have her little tape recorder and she'd be recording sounds of of dump trucks or, or 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 car horns or I'm like what are you doing oh I, I don't know i might use it for a sample later in my work you know i mean she was amazing so to have her take and and she wasn't an actress she was not a trained actress so to have her take on a role that was so devastating and dark and and tragic and 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 complicated and for her to not have the technique of knowing how you leave that character behind right. at the end of the day, it just weighed on her. It, it ripped her apart. It, it, it really did to the point where she was on the verge of nervous breakdown several times, just emotionally because it was such yeah. a challenging
0: role. Yeah. You know? But the finished film came together beautifully. You're at Cannes. You're walking the red carpet. Uh, yeah. You're there as an actor. How do, first of all, how did it feel to act? In the movie, uh, were you like, gosh, I hope
1: I can do this? Or this feels good? How did it feel? Well, it was fun because I had, uh, you know, I'd been an actor for a long time and, 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 and had no problem with it. It was just that I had stepped away from that to step into other roles, you know, as a choreographer sure. and then director. But, um, but the way Lars worked, which made it so easy, is yes, you learned the dialogue, but what he wanted you to do was he wanted you to improvise. Total improvisation based on what he had written. And then as you're doing a scene, if there was something that he felt was absolutely intrinsic to the plot and we had not mentioned it in the improvs, he would say, okay, you know what? We need to pick up that line. So can you find a way to work that idea or that line into into this this time? And I shoot it. But, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. I don't know if you remember it, but sitting with Catherine Denevitt, the very first scene in the play, in the film... And she says, uh, "What do I do? Bark like a dog or something?" And I said, "Yeah, bark, bark." And she goes, "Earth, earth, earth." That was all improvisation. Wow, so, you know, just crazy stuff. So, so you weren't so petrified that you were going to make a, a mistake with every word that he right. had written. You know, you felt like uh, you had some room to to exactly. find your way. Um, bring your own, to bring your own artistry to the piece.
0: Catherine Deneuve is a factory worker. It's very blue collar, like down and dirty. She is so glamorous. You cannot, she's still glamorous. She's still just a goddess, right? Even in a drab factory thing. Was that your thought? I'm watching it going, I'm sorry, that's Catherine. De- she's just fabulous, no matter
1: what. Oh, she was so fabulous. I fell so in love with her. And she was so down to earth. And, you know, the whole thing about working with, at, at the time, anyway, with Lars at Zentropa. Um, this kind of uh, revised uh, military base that 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 this company's Zantropa, had purchased um, you know Lars would come around with a bottle of schnapps during rehearsal and say come on everybody out on the lawn for some schnapps so you know there's <laughs> you know there's Bjork and me and Lars and the dancers and Catherine sitting on the in the grass outside having a schnapps before we go back to the rehearsals and you know you couldn't bring any kind of tension to the set. You couldn't bring any sort of presumptuousness there because they didn't know what to do with it, you know? Interesting. In Denmark, anyway, they kind of live in this philosophy that everybody's very equal. It's very socialistic, you know? Yeah. And that's why Lars was considered a bad boy because he always bucked the system, you know? But he made everybody feel equal. And that was one of the beautiful things about the film. Everybody felt equal and nobody felt like they were the star. Right. Um, it wasn't about power. No, it yeah. wasn't. At all. It was just about hard work and, and getting through. It was a difficult shoot, but it was also a powerful shoot.
0: And then you end up at Khan with the huge standing ovation and the. Did you walk the
1: thing like they all walked? Oh, walk? yeah. Oh, yeah. Would you oh, have a yeah. nice tux
0: on? Did you rock a tux?
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) There I was with Catherine and Joel and and, and Lars and and Bjork and, oh, my God, feeling on top of the world. Amazing. Talk about um, (laughs) king of the world, you
0: know. (laughs) You also directed a production of the musical Cabaret in Berlin. And I visited Berlin a few years ago. And what struck me about it doing the tours and the history is like, what is it like to be in a place where there's so much trauma? in the earth, like mm. so much darkness, so much trauma. Mm. What is it? I have a friend that lives there. What is it like to live there? Mm. What is it like to produce that show there? What did that feel like? Cause it's in the ground, right?
1: It's, it was in the ground, in the air, in everything. It, 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 it kind of overshadows everything I think, but also the glory of the fact that humanity won ultimately is right. there. You know, You're there so to you do it. you have the dichotomy live... of both of yeah. those things. and wall coming first, down as well.
0: The first big production
1: of that show there, right? It was the first original production wow. of Cabaret to be done in Berlin. Yes, absolutely. And I got to do it in a tiny little tent from 1918. And I worked with some actors who had actually lived through Hitler's reign. And actually one woman who was a, a, an understudy for Fräulein Cost um she when she was a little girl she was a little blonde blue-eyed cherub looking woman uh as a bay, as a little child and was in the front when hitler came to their school and picked her to come and sit up on his lap and sing the song on his lap wow. so here i am and and she she said i remember as a little girl sleeping at night and 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 waking up by the sound of marching boots going down the streets and you know, so you're here. You are creating a, a piece of theater about that time period, working with people who actually lived that period. It was it was like material you could never ever get in any other situation. It was remarkable. Were there
0: times when it was sort of overwhelming? Like I need absolutely. to just take a step back
1: here for a second. This is too intense. Yeah, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And there were times when you know I, I had some reaction from the cast because. You know, being German, some of them were like, you know, why does this, I don't know if I like this musical. It's all about everything that we've tried to forget. And, you know, I mean, we, they said we've been have this thrust down our throats for years. And, you know, and I said, well, that's just the nature of it. I said, but the beauty of the piece is that the more you, the more people can experience this cathartically, yes. hopefully the less it will ever occur again.
0: I think art allows people to, Access and express their emotions. I think it does a great service for humankind. You write a chapter where you talk about your experiences with Shirley MacLaine, Diana Ross, and Hal Prince. Mm. And they're not great experiences. And as I was reading them, of course, I love show business intrigue and stuff that's going on. And and there was a part of me that's like, wow, he's telling this story. What, did you, especially the Shirley MacLaine one, which we'll talk about a little bit, we don't need to go into great detail with this, but, um, you had an experience with her on the tour that wasn't great. And did you think, should I write this in the book? Shall I, um, did you have any hesitations about telling stories about not so great behavior that you, that you've been, um,
1: that you've been witness to? Well, I didn't originally, but then Amy, you know, Amy, my co-writer, said, you know, Vincent, I think that you need to do a chapter on some of the not successful moments you've had. And I thought it was also important because, you know, people look at someone like myself who've had an incredible career, incredible career, I'm so grateful, and they think that it's easy, that it always works out, that it's, you know, this magic carpet ride. And I thought, you know, for those people that need to understand that you do run into conflict. You do run into challenges that sometimes make you question whether you are a valid artist or not. Um, I thought those stories were important to share. Well, and you, you
0: write about how they, these experiences sort of make you doubt yourself or what was my part in this. And especially the Shirley MacLaine one, which I will try to summarize or, or if you want to explain it. But you're a young dancer on our tour, and you you had chemistry with her, and you felt like there was something in the air, but nothing palpable. Um, but you had a good collaboration. You go to Australia, you meet somebody there, and start dating them, and bring them back to meet Shirley, and everything in your relationship changes on on stage and off. Is that a fair uh, summation of what
1: happened? Uh, well, almost. Um, I wouldn't <laughs> say that, I wouldn't say that that was the catalyst of things going downhill. It had right. happened. A- before that. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, but, but Shirley was not, didn't seem to be very happy about the fact that and I, I don't know if it was that I brought another guy back to meet her. I, I'm not sure the reason for it. I, you know, I, I just don't know. But the difficulty was that there was a stupid little moment in the show where she had a belt that had a string of beads over her ass. Right. And, uh, and, and my job, one of my moments like two second moments in the entire show right was to fasten this velcro belt well sometimes shirley would put on weight and it would come right around her belly and these these beads were not on an elastic string they were on taut string like fishing wire right so when she turned her asked to the audience to do this little twerking thing. These beads were supposed to go up and down and up and down and the audience would laugh. And, right. and sometimes when she had gained a little weight, she would push her stomach out and the Velcro would come apart. And this became my problem that I didn't know how to put two pieces of Velcro together. Right, And it just magnified to the point where she was saying, horrible things to me on stage with her face turned up stage to me while she was twerking her ass to the audience and her belt falling off and and eventually fired me, telling me that I was totally unprofessional, I had no talent, and I would never make it in this business. And I was, of course, devastated until about six weeks later, the guy who she had hired to replace me got the mumps, and the road manager called me to ask me if I would come back and do my part in the show. There were only four of us. Right. And I had to think about it for a minute, and I thought, okay, yeah, I can be a bigger person than Shirley. I'm going to go do it, you know. And I did it, and I learned two new pieces that afternoon and rehearsed the whole show quickly without any conversation with Shirley and went on that night, and we did it flawlessly. The belt stayed on, and she walked up to my couple floors up to my dressing room and told me that I was the consummate professional. So, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, that's wow. the nature of business. It's a crazy world.
0: You know, as I was reading that story, though, it really resonated lately with the stories that you hear about power, abuse of power, sexual yes. flirtation. It resonated. It resonated felt like it had shared some DNA with the Me Too stuff, where yeah. Yeah, am I putting out a vibe? What am I doing? And it's yeah. really the person in power manipulating. And but, but the person on the other end of it is like, it's my fault. What am I doing? And you have, uh, you have all that shame around it. it. It had echoes of that. And um, it was just a different kind of expression of it. And she gave you a purse, like a, a woman's purse.
1: Yeah, it was very bizarre. She gave these lovely presents to the four dancers, and everyone else had something great. and And I opened up mine, and it was it was like a shoulder bag purse, and but not a, a not, not a
0: man purse, not like a nice no. like uh, messenger bag. Yeah.
1: No, it was a purse, purse, and um, yeah. And everybody kind of got it, and it was weird and strange, and there was a little bit of silence. And anyway, but you know, that's all in the past and people are who they are and they do what they do. And, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things about me is that I, you know, I think it had to do with my father being so difficult and, and home life being so bad. I I got to have a, a certain appreciation and respect for who I am in the world and and, and my own sense of self. And. So, even though every gig i've done i've been so honored and 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 respectful of these celebrities I've worked with because they've great talent and they've worked their butts off to get where they are too. but you know i've never felt that any of them are more important than me we're all human beings, you know right. we're all just a different part in our life or career, so I never understood these power plays or why people thought they 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 had the the right to to act like this or to use a sense of power over anybody just because they've in a higher position. Right. I don't care if it's Hal Prince or Michael Peters, you know, it's like, no, we're all equals here. We're all just doing a different part of the same gig, you know? Yeah. And and I think that people either respected me for that or did disliked me for that. But whatever, you know.
0: Right you write about Hal Prince in the book and we'll let people buy the book to read the whole story, but it, it was your, it was your chance for Broadway, right? This whole other Avenue. How do you feel about Broadway now? That was, you had that experience. You were nominated for Tony, but it was, uh, you know, not the greatest collaboration. How do you feel about Broadway generally? Did it sour you on it or would, you you know, is that still a world that you love?
1: Well, I really did love it. Um, You know, I, I, I was going to, I auditioned for um, Michael Peters' uh, co- Choreographed Dream Girls with Michael Bennett. Right. And I knew both at the time through Michael Peters. And I auditioned for um, the white guy in there who sings Got Me a Cadillac Car. Right. And I got the... But my choreography career was just starting to happen out here. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be an actor on Broadway. That's not what I want to do. So I, I said no to it. But I did want to work on Broadway. I love the theater. I... That was how I began my whole yeah. uh, theatrical life was with working in the theater. And so I was crushed with what happened with How Prince and also the fact that he basically blacklisted me for several other people. I would get calls from somebody and then I would get a call a little bit later and uh, or I'd never hear from them again after they were very interested in me. And I found out that it was because Someone from the Michael, uh, someone from the Hal Prince camp had said something very negative about me. And so that was very difficult. Yeah. But I'll tell you, um, I, theater is, is my love, truly. And that's what I've been doing for the past decade and a half now. And um, right now, even now, I'm working on a, an original musical um, that we just did a reading for backers in London that hopefully will take off in within a year or something. So... And I will direct it. I won't choreograph it, but I will direct it. So I've been working on it for about six years. I love the theater. And even though I was really devastated by how Prince, it didn't tell my love of theater at all.
0: That's good. And that sucks that that happened because if you feel so powerless, like what, yeah. what, how am I supposed to get around that? You found interesting opportunities in Europe. And I – I, um, this is a totally separate thing, but I – I uh, host these virtual games. Um, that's my the crazy background that I have that I co-created. Uh-huh. But I, I work with a lot of people from Europe, and I'm like, I feel this draw. Like, I don't know what. There's something about Europeans, or maybe other countries, or maybe un americans non-Americans, I guess that that I find a connection to for some reason. What do you, What do you think about working overseas? Do you feel like it seems like you've had some really great creative experiences over there that and it's different than some of the power plays you may see here
1: yes i have i've had great experiences in japan great experiences in china great experiences in europe and there's a different kind of mentality that happens it's not about um i don't see a lot of ageism ever you know even though i'm a little older now but when i was doing some of these things i was much younger but and and i find that there's a respect for knowledge It's not just about how famous you are. It's about what you've accomplished and how much you know and how much you can share and how much you can communicate. Um, And I found that to be very different than what happens here in the States. Here it's about who you are, you know, how much money you have, what gigs have you done. uh, And and are you under 24 years old? Yeah. So, you know.
0: You write very movingly about a depression that you went through when, when things weren't going great in your career and, and uh, a trip to Santa Barbara where you nearly uh, ended your life.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and, and a phone call came at the last second. Yeah. Is there a part of you that, that thinks, okay, there's a reason I'm still here? Like, what do you think that phone call was? It was just somebody asking if you wanted ice, but it, it came at the right moment. How do you think of that, that call that changed your mindset in that moment?
1: Well, the interesting thing is going back to our early, our conversation and the psychic minister, the psychic priest who told me that when I was around 50, that my career would change, you know, and that was right around that time when I was around 50 and gigs weren't coming in for some reason as a choreographer. And I was way past the dancing part. And I just didn't see any way of moving forward. And I, I felt not only helpless, but uh, over i thought right. that it was all it's over done long.
0: everything I've, I've done everything great that i have going yeah. to happen has already happened yeah
1: yeah exactly and i think that that whole that crazy conversation of that, of someone calling me when i had a i hate to say it, but a gun in my mouth um and asking me if i wanted ice it, it pulled me back to reality and i think that it kind of not only brought me back because I then changed my career. I became a director and, and, and have accomplished some amazing, wonderful things. And as a director and, uh, and also that I have a relationship, which is of all the relationships I've had in my life, the most important relationship I know that I'll ever have. So I think there were reasons and I'm very grateful for that woman who calls asked asked yeah. <laughs> so so you're in that situation you get the call you
0: come back then what how do you change how do you go forward do you, how do you do you pick up the phone and try something like what gets you back in
1: a good place well I was fortunate enough again to have a phone call and the phone call was from a man who ran the Cinematheque Francaise in Paris and he called me up and he asked me if I would be interested in coming to France to do a evening about the work I had accomplished with Michael Jackson and Madonna. And all of a sudden I felt that I was okay, that, that I fit in somehow again, you know, and that, that people were interested in my voice, my creative voice and what I had to say and what I had accomplished. And, um, Again, it was you know these some of these crazy phone calls that I received that changed my life the one from Michael, the one from Madonna, the one from Patrick at the cinema tech it's uh yeah, as much as I hate the phone, sometimes it's an amazing uh,
0: yeah amazing
1: instrument for making huge changes in my life and career
0: yeah, um, I'm old friends with Fred Tallickson, the choreographer who you probably know
1: oh, and, I love Fred
0: and um. We were hanging out recently, and he was talking about some job that he did. This was a while ago. This was, like, last year at my birthday party. And I still go to dance class, and I still have those moments where I nailed it. I felt it. I was in it. I, uh, yes. And I asked Fred, I said, when, you're at, when it's your job, when you're hustling for jobs and you've got to make the day, And you, do you still have those moments of, like, yes, this is just around dance generally? And he goes, once in a while, he goes, he described this moment where he was demonstrating some move that a girl was going to do for him. And it, he just, like, lost it and got super into it. And and the whole crew was like, I'm I'm probably getting this all wrong. But he had that moment where he was, like, working it. And he had that thrill of just the pure thrill of dancing. Do
1: you get that? I don't dance so much anymore. Right. You know, my body's has, has uh, problems from all those years of dancing. And um, so... You know, I'm I'm a bit debilitated that way. I mean, sure. I'm very active and stuff, but I don't go back and take dance class. Sure, I do. I do still teach thriller every once in a while on Halloween time, and that's fun. What but, a blast!
0: Uh, yeah. I want to learn it from you. I'm sure I messed up a ton of it. But well, do, you, do you have the moments of of joy around it or around something that you're creative that that oh, feels sure. those pure moments?
1: I have joy when I. And it's not often, but, you know, something comes up on Facebook or something and I look at something or, or the birdcage comes up or, or, or or something from Madonna or Michael or, and I think, wow, you know, I actually created that. That's, that came from me or came through me. Right. And and i And I can even feel sometimes the physicality of a move that I made, or movements that I created, a a a a combination of things that show up in something. and oh, absolutely, I mean, that's from the very beginning, that's what gave me the joy. It's those those endorphins that flow through us when we when we're getting something right and our body's moving and it's charged, and there's just nothing like it in the world. nothing, nothing, nothing like it. Ever. And I'm so grateful that dance came into my life and that I had this incredible career dancing. So grateful.
0: I love it. Um, You mentioned the birdcage. You know who else I love from your book? Mike Nichols, the director, who you worked on movement and choreography for the birdcage. But the famous Robin Williams, Fosse, 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 Madonna, 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 that was something that you came up with with Robin. Can you tell a little bit about how that unfolded?
1: Sure. (laughs) I'd worked with Robin on a couple projects. I directed a big project about Dr. Seuss and I had asked Robin to come in and be a Seussian father reading the cat in the hat. So that was fun. But I had also choreographed, um, something called, uh, what was it called? Comic relief. Yeah. Uh, It it was a big charity event. And I, I choreographed that openings for several years with Billy Crystal, Whoopi Goldberg and Robin. So I knew Robin, um, again, creatively, um, when I was doing this project, we were shooting that scene. The scene had nothing to do with the uh, eclectic celebration of the dance in terms of putting it into 3D. All that happened was Lucas Luca, who was the, the da- male dancer in the piece, said, what do I do? Do I stand here like an object? And Robin only said, no, you do the eclectic celebration of the dance. And then he exited. So they shot the scene and there was a break and he came to me and he said, Vince, I... I you need to help me. I, I'm so tired of playing the straight gay man. I need to be funny. I need to do something funny. Can you think of something funny for me? And I said, okay, give me a couple minutes, Robin. So um, I he went back to shoot that scene or other elements of that scene. And, and he came back on the next break. And I taught him the eclectic celebration of the dance. And they went back to shoot the scene. And this time he did it. And, of course, they couldn't keep it because everybody broke up laughing hysterically. Right. And Mike Nichols said, well, that was very wonderful, Robin, but let's go back and do the scene as Elaine May wrote it. And Robin said, well, I didn't do that. Vincent created that for me. And he said, well, boys, I love it, but let's do the scene as Elaine wrote it. And Robin got down on his hands and knees and crawled across the floor and pulled on Mike's pant legs and said, oh, Mike, please, please, let's shoot it, please. And Mike said, all right, boys, we'll shoot it after we get this, the one that I want in the can, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to wind up in the in the final cut. Yeah. Um, and we all know the history of that. And so. it
0: did. And it's, and it's there. Um, Luca Tomasini, I knew him a little bit back in my dancing days and I used to do people's resumes on my computer and he, uh-huh. and he, I did his resume once and he was so beautiful. Oh uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. And he was also in Evita. He was, he was, I he was him lovely. Partner her. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. But Mike when Nichols, Mike Nichols ended up, um, being someone you kept in touch with. He wrote you some lovely letters that you included in the book. Like I just loved reading that, that he was a champion oh. of yours and a, and a and a mentor and kind of good at pep talks. Right. Things like that.
1: Oh, So sweet. And brought me in on another film on closer, Um, you know, which was incredible. He had a moment. He called me up I, and said, listen, Vince, I'm, I, I have to do this very sensitive scene and, and I'm not quite sure how to do it. And I'd love to bring you over to kind of just stage it and co-direct it with me. And, um, and I did, I, I came over and stood by his side and we created this scene and yeah, I mean, he was such a champion for me and just such a incredible man, such an incredible human being, so kind and so full of love. You know, I know he had a lot of problems in his life too, but fortunately I got to spend time with him when he was in one of the up periods of his life and career and, uh, very fortunate for that. I love that.
0: Um let me look at Great. my list this is we're going this is going to be a two part episode by the way, because as you can see we've gone kind of uh, <laughs> oh my god I see yeah, yeah. on Madonna, you write about her that of all the stars you worked with, she really knows how to live. Can you talk about that a little bit more? What
1: do you mean by that well you know the the Madonna that I knew anyway, and again i i don't know her now, but you know she with all the fame, she seemed to love it so much and bask in it so much but have a handle on it where someone like Michael, I mean, I was comparing them specifically and, you know, Michael lived in this hidden bubble and had so little interaction with real people in, in real life. And as opposed to Madonna who, you know, you could see her driving around in a car in Hollywood, you know, wave at her as she drove by you and, you know, go to clubs and she would take her friends to clubs and go dancing in a club or go to a local restaurant and, you know, she lived her life, and I think she still does. I mean, my God, look at what she's done as a mother. She's, you know, adopted all these children, and she's been an incredible mom to them, taking care of them and giving them a life that they probably would not have had. And, you know, she's just lived life. She's participated in the world that we live in while simultaneously living in that superstar world that, of course, she's been encased in for three decades now, four yeah. decades
0: I mentioned the interview that I got to do with her back in the day, and I asked her if she could be anonymous for one day what she would do. And she said she would go to a club and go dancing, and I loved well, that. But she did that anyway, whether yeah. she was
1: anonymous or not. Yeah. You know, that's what I loved about her, you know. That's amazing. Yeah. Um,
0: you write about your refrigerator and putting things on it that sort of inspire <laughs> you because I do dream boards. I get, I'm a little woo. Uh. Yeah, and I find them empowering in a way, and I have – I've talked about it before, but it – it it sort of helps you think about what you want when there's no stakes, and then when opportunities come up, you don't hem and haw because you've already thought, oh, yeah, I want to go to England. I already said that, so yes. Like it, I find it helpful in that way, but talk about the things you put on your refrigerator.
1: Well, th- the other reason I do it is because I believe in this kind of psychic energy that's out there in the universe, and I figured that if – you know, everybody has thoughts that go through their minds. We don't know oftentimes where these thoughts come from, how they get there, how they flow through, what they mean necessarily. But I always believed that if I put someone on the refrigerator that I wanted to work with, and and there were not a lot of people, I mean, crazy situation. I, I, I didn't have Michael on there, but I had Madonna on there. I had Elvis Presley on there that I later did a project for Cirque du Soleil about Elvis Presley, years after he was dead, of course. Um, Bjork on there. uh, Glenn Close on there. All these people I got to work with. And I think that and Lars Von Trier on there. You put and, Lars Von Trier on your refrigerator. Oh, after I saw Breaking the Waves, uh, I saw it twice. Once, and I went back to see it the next night. And I did everything I could to find a magazine that had a picture of Lars Von Trier, and I put it up on the. On right, the you're not.
0: You, their Google Image probably wasn't around like that. And oh like, no, 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 there wasn't. Wow, no, you really went biggest. out of your way to find a picture of Lars Von Trier because I, I didn't quite explain it well enough. But you, you use your refrigerator as sort of like a a dream board kind of thing or a a, a thing that you hope to just plan in the universe, I guess.
1: Yes. Because I believe that by putting these people in the refrigerator and passing them all day long, all night long, I see them, I figure I see them, they go into my mind, they go into my psychic energy, and that gets thrown out into the world. So somebody else is thinking about, oh, I need somebody, I want somebody to do this project. And Zoom, my face or my name or something that I created gets into their psyche, and all of a sudden it happens. And And it's
0: happened repeatedly in your career. Oh, my
1: God. Again and again and again.
0: And I love the idea of you going to a bookstore going, i got to find a picture of Lars von Trier. Can you (laughs) – sir, I'm looking for a picture of you to put on my refrigerator. It's a long story. But did you tell Lars that you did
1: that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, I did. And the funny thing was um, at that point, I I was just making a decision that I wasn't going to choreograph anymore. I was just going to direct. And my agent called me up because Lars had found that I was with this agency, um, Julie McDonald. And she called me up and she said, Vincent, I know you said you don't want to choreograph anymore, but I've been to your house and I've seen a picture of Lars and I've seen a picture of Bjork on your refrigerator. And so (laughs) this is something that you have to follow through with because they're both on your refrigerator. Yeah, yeah.
0: and it, it does sort of do that. I find that, too, in my own little things. What's on your refrigerator now?
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you, Gaga was on there for a long time. I really, I really wish that I'd had the opportunity to work with Gaga. And oddly enough, I did get a call to do one gig with Gaga and it was the David Bowie. She did a thing about David Bowie. I can't remember if it was on the Grammys or whatever. And I got a call to do it with her, but I was in Europe working and I couldn't do it. And that's the only, the only time I had something close working with Gaga. Um, Right now, I'll be honest with you, um, a dear, dear friend of mine, um, has a young, incredible choreographer and human being, um, has been stricken with cancer, and So his name is on there, and it says that he has no more cancer. Um, those are the kind of things I have on the refrigerator right now. That's beautiful. Um, hopeful, positive thoughts, yeah, that I look at every day, and I repeat as mantras every time I walk by the refrigerator. I love that. Uh, Do
0: you have a sort of motto or words that you live by? Things that you think about as you go about your day? Because it seems like you've had a lot of ups and downs. You're still here doing it. Um, Is there something you think about that's sort of like your approach to life?
1: Um, I just think that it's important to be honest and it's important to be kind. And important to be grateful. Yeah. Those are the things I live by. Love and Having love in my life and spreading love around from me out outwards. That's what's important to me. I love that.
0: Um, tell people how they can find your book.
1: Well, the book is called Icons and Instincts, and it's available on Amazon for one thing, all over the world. Besides Amazon.com, I think it's in bookstores all over the country, and also the publishing house Rare Bird Lit. R uh, A R E B I R D L I T in Los Angeles. You can purchase it there.
0: This has been a thrill. I'm uh, oh, yeah. I, I loved it. Thank you for giving me so much time. Everyone needs oh. to check out that book and uh, and we'll watch for whatever you're up to next. I can't wait to see what it right. is. Bye, Vince. Okay. Bye. Thanks again to Vincent Patterson. I could have talked to him all day, and I did talk to him for a few hours. He was so generous with his time and his stories. Um, I loved it. Uh, check out his book, Icons and Instincts, wherever you get your books. You'll be happy you did. All right, so this happened. Okay, you know at the beginning of the podcast I always talk about, um, you can you know donate to my virtual tip jar, and there are expenses that come with doing the podcast and stuff. Well, I got... Um, an email this week about a service that this company out of Lithuania of all places does for podcasts where they create a website for you and it automatically uploads everything and it looks really cool. It's called In Podium and they, they're they so sneaky. They send you a link for what it will look like when they do it and I click on it and it's like, oh, this looks so much better than what I got going on now and it can integrate into my regular um, website and it just looks so good. It's like, it was so much better organized than my own website for my podcast. So I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to do it. Um, so if you ever donate, that it's going to things like that because it's a subscription. Like because everything in life is a subscription now. But you know what? I think it's worth it and it's cool. But my main point that I want to mention is that it's just a small startup in Lithuania. And uh, I got on a Zoom call with this guy. He just had this cool vibe. It was like what I was talking about with Vincent about, I don't know, I'm vibing with people who are not in the States. Um, interesting. There's just a something and I have to figure out what it is. I think maybe it's I think in America we brought we got brought up with the American dream and so we think we're supposed to have everything so great. And then when it's not, we're like cranky about it or competitive or something. I don't know, I just love these little startups and I love how technology can bring the world together and that some guy in Lithuania can help me make my podcast better. That's really cool. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a shout-out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye! I'm, uh, oh, yes. I, I loved it. Thank you for giving me so much time. Everyone needs oh. to check out that book, and uh, and we'll watch for whatever you're up to next. I can't wait to see what great. that is. Awesome.
1: Thank you so much, Dennis. I really enjoyed speaking with you, man. You, Thank as, you as well. So much.
0: This was a blast, and I hope our paths cross soon. If you do any readings of your things that you got going on or whatever, okay. and you ever need anyone in an audience or anything like that, let me okay, know. I great. would love to come. Awesome. Okay, I,
1: I will. Thank right. you so
0: much. <laughs> Bye, Vince. Before you hang out, we're going to act like that's the end. Um, I'm going to use the book cover for, for the art, and then I usually use a portrait. So if you have, like, a headshot or an Arthur photo of a picture of you that you like, um, I usually do the project and the, and the person um, side okay. by side for my art. So, yeah, just pop oh. that in, in an email. Okay, awesome. great. And I'm going to divide okay. this into two parts because it's, it's so great. So, oh, Thank okay. you. Thanks this was, this was so – uh, this was thrilling for me, so I, I really oh. appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man. Okay. Me too. Have a great day. All right. Take care. Bye, Vince. It's okay. Bye.
1: Recording stopped.